The setting that is currently called Mistara started off as the known world. Lauren Schnick and Tom Moldvay created the setting as a shared world that multiple gamers could contribute to for their home games. When the BX edition of D&D came out, Schnick and Moldvay were told that the Greyhawk setting was reserved for Advanced Dungeons & Dragons only. That's when the known world became known to D&D players, as it became the backdrop of the BX and later BECMI D&D adventures. When basic D&D was phased out of existence so TSR could focus on only developing 2nd edition AD&D, the known world was renamed Mistara and was ported to AD&D. Unfortunately, modern gamers haven't been exposed to the known world, which is ironic considering the fact they have been exposed to the Forgotten Realms. And now we present to you Thacko with Advantage. Welcome to Thacko with Advantage. We're two friends that have been playing D&D a long time. While we both love lots of other RPGs, D&D is the phoenix that just keeps rising from the ashes. Hi, I'm Chris, and I'm not Ange, which I know is weird, but I've been gaming since 1988, and in uh, 2012 I started the Misdirected Mark podcast, and I've been talking about games on the internet ever since, over the course of a thousand plus episodes and a dozen different shows. And I'm Jared, the review gnome at Gnomes 2, and I've been gaming since roughly 1985. In addition to writing reviews at Gnomes 2, I've got my own site, whatdoiknowjr.com, where I write additional reviews and opinion pieces on a variety of RPGs. And Jared has written more reviews than I've done podcasts, probably by a factor of like 10. So, <laughs> All right, let's talk about format and topics. So after we look at the games we're running in the campaign journal, we're going to take a look back at 2023 and what it meant for D&D. Then we'll have some recommendations of D&D related content for you to check out in our downtime research segment. And it might have something to do with lore and the year 2024 for me anyway. That's your preview. Let me just finish up this campaign journal. What did you do, Chris? Campaign drill. I don't get to do this very often, so uh, here, I will cover the most recent game that I run. So last time I was on the show back in the day when we talked about the D&D movie, I'm running this game called Eladara that's got two different games inside of it running at the same time, so the, the heroes of both different games of two different groups are playing at the same time. Um, they've crossed over a little bit, but not a ton. Anyways, this campaign is the heroes of Pirin. They were the mercenaries of Pirin, but they managed to become heroes, so we changed the name <laughs> of the campaign. They're now exploring a place called the Baron Tor, which is, think of like a mountain range, and then there's the tallest mountain that exists there, and it's fantasy tall, right? Like, <laughs> the mountains are like here, and this mountain's like 20 times taller than any mountain around it, right? It's because it is the domain, one of the domains of, of Valhalla Morris, the Mountain Strangler, one of the, av the avatar of Earth of this setting. I don't have gods, I have avatars, there's six of them. The main bad guy is a guy named Odvek, the Avatar of Darkness. The reason that they're avatars is because they can swap in, because the powers, the, the elemental powers, are the things that are really important, but they don't have a person. They're just energy. They're intelligent or sentient energy in some way, shape, or form, but they need an avatar to channel it. And you can kill these avatars or be replaced or retire as an avatar at times. Odvek has been the Avatar of Darkness for thousands of years, which is the longest running avatar. Some of them like swap out, like there's a character in this campaign that is the Avatar of Wind. He became the Avatar of Wind because he's like, I want to be the Chosen one. I'm like, all right, get ready for this ride. <laughs> so that's happened over the course of, uh, they're all level nine right now. They're exploring the Baron Tor because they're looking for a vault to get this sword called the Soulbreaker. They're racing against a, uh, a Dark Knight who is Odvek's agent who wants to get it because it can break the sword called Material Hope, which is essentially the Avatar of Light, which one of the other characters in that party carries because we're playing that kind of game. <laughs> so they're, they're racing for this sword. They started at the bottom, they went through the through the bottom where this Dark Knight and his team, which they've met already and uh, escaped with their lives, went through some other place. The Medusa, she's a Medusa-like earth elemental that controls called the Gate of Stone. So she can turn you to stone by looking at you, but she doesn't have the snake hair. She's an elemental. She's an earth elemental. Ah. But she's more human-like. She's a, uh, instead of Tiflings, one of the other characters, he's a fire, he's a, he's a Tifling, but the Tiflings in this world, they didn't make a pact with demons. They made a pact with fire elementals. So there's a, a whole different set of races of people that made packs with elementals. 
Some of them still have them bound to them. Some of them decided not to because, like, the fire elementals, they got a little ragey. So they're like, we need to stop doing this, but they're still, you know, fire-based. Um, anyway, this Medusa, she's one of the guardians of the mountain and one of uh, Valhalla Morris's agents, like higher agents. Anyways, she has all these transformed statues in her garden, and it's a safe space. <laughs> Unless you mess with her, then she can activate all those statues. And there are things like beholders and dragons and stuff in this garden that are turned to stone. So they decide to go through the stone gate to start exploring this place to try to find this vault from this archmage that built it here. Hunts out the sword inside of it. The gate is cursed in a way. Uh, you have to pay a toll, essentially. When you come out, you have to pay um, a certain amount of uh, earth reagents, earth elemental reagents, or different types of reagents. Reagents are a magical resource in this game. This game is house ruled to all ever loving hell, so there you go. <laughs> they, uh, they go through the gate. They know they can go back. They've run into some ropers. They, uh, they beat them up. It was kind of a tough fight because they're not used to fighting things with AC-20. <laughs> they're all a bunch of glass cannons, really. It's really kind of interesting. Anyways, they uh, ran into then an intelligent slime named Valder Krunk, who I rolled in a random, I have a random chart for this place. Like, there, there's, it's a mega dungeon. There's a flow chart with, like, 20 different levels that they have to go around and, like, find their way through. And I have, like, maps for each of the levels. <laughs> or I will have maps. I have, like, nine maps right mm -hmm. now. They ran into this intelligent slime, Valder Krunk, who, he looked like an ochre jelly at first, but he was towering like this to begin with. But they gave him a water reagent, and when they gave him a water reagent, he started to get some more of his form back, because he used to be an elven adventurer, <laughs> who also went to the vault. Now, he's very hungry for water, because the more water he gets, the less he talks like this, and eventually he gets to his more British accent, where he speaks very eloquently, and they actually gave him enough water reagent to make him speak like this, and then they learned a whole bunch of stuff about the Baron Tor, because he's been all over it, because he's an, an immortal, intelligent slime that can basically dissolve anything it touches. So they made friends with it, they talked to it, they learned a bunch of stuff, now they're going to make their way into the, uh, this was in the lower tunnels, they're making their way into a place called the Sand Dunes. Yes, the, this place is like its own ecosystem, so there's like a whole space that's like dirt and sand, and there's like Bulets sharking around in there and all sorts of terrible things. The side plot that is most interesting right now is uh, our, our Dwarven Rune Knight Ortho. He has made a deal a long time ago, like sessions and sessions ago, with a thing called the Whispering Demon. Uh, his, they call him Wind. He is an, a, an ancient a wind elemental. He doesn't have any form, but he's a seductor. So if you bond with him, like you let him give you his power more and more, like you get more and more power, but eventually you have to keep making these wisdom saving throws. And if you fail enough of them, which they don't know what the number is, and I have a track <laughs> on a separate Google Doc, he can bond you take, and take you over. And some of that started to already show itself. After he failed his seventh saving throw, uh, it, it actually took some of his actions for him on his turn as like extra actions to like help defend and, and block things. So it seems like a good thing, but it's really not because he'll lose his character if he gets to um, 10 and fails a saving throw. <laughs> Although he's trying to talk Wind into being a good guy. So there's that too. And the party finally now knows about it. But Wind is a useful resource. So it's, it's tricky, right? You have a 5,000 year old Wind Elemental that's willing to tell you stuff. That's my campaign journal. What about you, Jared? All right. Well, uh, we had our last game of 2023. And all of the PCs headed back home to Akalon from the Isle of Midnight, which they were sent to kill a royal chimera and also to sink the island. And they have not sunk the island. They killed the chimera. They cut a deal with the priestesses of Hakate on the island. And they wanted the uh, priestesses wanted to be able to evacuate all of the people there. And because I have uh, players that aren't monsters, they thought uh, monsters in the sense of morality, they decided, yeah, we should probably let them get anybody that's not like a horrible, nasty, fiendish monster off of this place. So they gave them 20 days and they came back into town. They spent those 20 days and their downtime 
trying to lay low because the um the prophet of Sagotan, the big uh the dragon gave them the pearl that they were supposed to take to the uh, bottom of the island to sink it and they really didn't want to try and explain why they were spending 20 extra days not sinking the island <laughs> they tied up some loose ends um Kazina, uh we rescued they rescued her sister so she helped her sister get back into her criminal underworld uh, dealings. Dude, that's like a big deal. It's been like a giant plot point in that campaign, hasn't it? Oh, yeah. It was a big plot point. We got to have a nice like, you know, her sister was like, you know, I've been on the run for so long. I need to get back in the game. She's going to be working as a mastermind for this uh, local criminal crew. She let Kazina know that, you know, at some point, if you ever need me, I got a crew with me now. We'll see what we can do to help you. So it's a favor that they can call in at some point in time. Oh, that's awesome. Eventually, after they tied up all of their loose ends, oh, they also found out that Cora, the other woman that they rescued, is actually an officer in a mercenary company. And the agent of their boss, who is a dragon, has decided that she wants to ransom Cora back to her mercenary company, which is actually fairly common in this area of Midgard in the setting. Sure. So it's kind of an idea like, you know, she's a political prisoner, but they're going to treat her well and there'll be this formal exchange of people paying the money and her going back home. But the PCs were going to try and help her sneak away if she wanted to, even you know, against her boss's wishes. And he was like, no, I will probably look better to the mercenary company if we go through this formally than if I you know, had to get an adventuring company to have mercy on me and sneak me out. I'd rather kind of do this on the up and up. So we'll see how that one plays out. They finally got back to the uh, Isle of Midnight so they can go down into the depths and plant the pearl and sink the island. When they reach the cave mouth that leads down into the depths of the island, they find the cleric of Nethus that escaped them in the sewers months ago. And this is the guy that was leading this terrorist cell that was like throwing orbs with water elementals to just trash everything in town. And basically it's someone from the era before the Dragon Empire ruled this, this area. Unlike last time, when he was much more politically minded, he started talking about not the god of the sea, Nethus, who he normally wor worshipped, but the god of the depths. Ooh. Yeah, and he got this kind of wild-eyed look on his face, and then his acolytes came out, and his acolytes had a few extra tentacles in strategic places on their humanoid forms. Oh, that's fun. And he's basically saying that the god of the sea, you know, Nethus is just a mask of the god of the sea, and the god of the depths is who he's really serving now. And, you know, he wanted to embrace the party. Oh, okay. So they got into a fight with him and he's actually pretty tough. Several people that don't normally get badly injured got pretty badly injured from his lightning bolts and his trident that also did lightning damage. The acolytes didn't do a whole lot because the uh, cleric dropped an insect plague on top of them and <laughs> they didn't last very long there. We did have a fun moment when we had insect plague, which was supposed to be like this whole mass of cicadas just roiling around and then on the other side the uh acolytes summoned evard's black tentacles so there's this other area of the cave that's all tentacles super on point very themey <laughs> but they did they won they were pretty beat up they healed themselves before they went deeper into the cavern when they get to the cavern where they're supposed to plant the pearl a figure rises up out of the the various pools that are in this uh dark area underneath the the island and the creature looks like a hobgoblin, but it has like pale, fleshy, fish-like skin over its normal skin, and its bottom half is tentacles. He mentions that he's going to introduce them to his master, and at that point, there were two large lobster-looking things with uh, extended legs and tentacles on their faces, 
And then in the back of the room, rising up out of the water, is a big three-eyed fish with tentacles. It's like Discount Cthulhu up in there, huh? <laughs> with his Discount Deep ones? It feels like that's what's going on there. Yeah. I like your reverse heist thing. Let's get the pearl to, to the bottom to sink the sink the, the island. Like, that's pretty solid. Yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. And part of this is, and I believe the players are going to figure this out pretty quickly. Since Ange isn't here, I'll reveal it. Not like she's not going to listen to this. But essentially, the priestesses of Hakate were willing to abandon the Isle of Midnight because these things are moving up through the depths of the ocean and taking over this island. Oh, so they're like, we don't want to mess with the, uh, with the, the, the deep, the, the emissary from the deep or whatever it's called, right? The, the lurker in the dark. I don't know. Pick, pick a, pick a Cthulian-esque name. Midgard is pretty good about that. Like, I, I, I guess if you want to destroy this island, we'll let you. I mean, we don't really want to fight you about it is what we're saying. You, you, we got other places we can go that are drier. <laughs> I, I always thought it was Hecate. Uh, is it Hecate? I don't know. I, I'm probably mispronouncing it. But then again, I also hear like there's like differences between like modern Greek and ancient Greek. Sure. And yeah. I, so, I just like that. That's an alternate pronunciation for uh, for uh, Hecate. Hecate. I like that, actually. <laughs> just, just depends on where you put the syllable. Yes. <laughs> the exactly. Emph the emphasis on the syllable, I should say. <laughs> I find that a lot of us, as we have grown up playing D&D, &D, learn that there are other people that pronounce a lot of things a lot differently than uh, we did when we just read words out of books. Yeah, right. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I also can cheat now because I just listen to audiobooks that are by like really reputable publishing companies that generally have the pronunciations right. I know it's, it's neat because you can go on the Internet and actually you know look up. How, do, how is this pronounced? And then you play it and you can hear it. Yeah, it's great. And then every once in a while you find one that disagrees. <laughs> uh -huh. It's really funny. And that is your early downtime research. It's on Google. You can find it. Exactly. Welcome to the Dungeon Master's Workshop. Now that we're firmly in 2024, it's time to take a look back at one of the most tumultuous years that D&D &D has had in a long time. Wizards of the Coast is still delivering cash to Hasbro's coffers, even though Hasbro's other divisions haven't been quite as prosperous. But it's not all about the financials. D&D has an anniversary coming up, and we saw both a major motion picture and a major video game release this last year. What happened in 2023, and what does it mean for 2024? Ooh, it's going to be so exciting to talk about all of this. Oh, man, this is going to be interesting. Folks out there, we're going to try to keep this positive. We won't, we won't be too terrible about oh, what no. we say here. We don't, want to, we don't want to do that. So what kind of long-term effects do you think we're going to see from the OGL fallout from January. So can we talk about this for a second? This, this, this whole situation? Oh yeah. In general, I think this, the OGL thing where they tried to rescind the OGL, what a dumb move. And that was obviously a move made by corporate. Yes. In fact, all the rumors that have come out were like anybody who was on the ground, like working on the game was like, don't do this. This is going to go badly. And then everybody in corporate was like, and eh, we're going to make money <laughs> hand over fist. We got a movie. We got a video game. It's going to be great. As dark as it was, and if you go back and like look at YouTube or blog posts or anything from that, that period of time, like January, February, into March, a lot of people are really, really sad and angry. Yeah. But the end result of that is we got the 5.1 rules in Creative Commons. Yeah. I mean, it sucked. Don't get me wrong. And people were sad and whatnot to the point where I had to write a parody song about my favorite things for the show because Ange and Jared were so upset. <laughs> Go listen to that. It's really funny. But we have this now, right? And because of that, so many games have already just like spawned from it or are coming out because of it. Mm -hmm. On top of the fact that a bunch of other game companies are like, oh, we'll just go do our own thing now. And that's creating a bunch of fantasy creativity, like fa this fantasy game space creativity that we haven't really had since the release of third edition. What was interesting to me is when 
that whole thing happened in January. You know, I was kind of depressed and down about the whole situation. I was like, I don't know that I can feel good about supporting them unless they not only back off of this, but do something that's going to show that, you know, they won't do this again. You know, the main thing that I could think of would be to dump this in Creative Commons, and I don't think they're going to do it. And then they turned around and did it, and I was shocked as hell. (laughs) (laughs) I was not expecting that at all. I also believe this is the first big, I mean, not that I didn't already realize it, but like Wizards of the Coast isn't really Wizards of the Coast anymore. It's just a Hasbro subsidiary. Yeah. Whatever Hasbro wants to do, they're going to do, regardless of what Wizards of the Coast thinks is best. Yeah, I think the people at Wizards get their way when Hasbro does not lean heavily on them. Yeah. And they were leaning really hard on them because they wanted it to be a, they were pushing for that billion dollar brand thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they've changed their mind about some of that stuff. And we'll talk about that a little later as to, as to what the events are that, that have occurred that, that have led to this, this shift in philosophy, I think. Yeah. Uh, do you have anything else that you want to say about the long-term effects that you think of the OGL fiasco? Not specifically, except to talk about, we've got some 5e SRD games that are coming out. What are these going to mean for the hobby? On my list of these, I put Level Up Advanced 5e, but I always like to put the caveat in there. Ian Publishing was actually working on that before the the OGL thing blew up. So, I mean, that was actually out there. The, the thing has existed for a long while. Also, if you like Dungeons and Dragons and you're like kind of like, eh, I could use a, a step up to my game, you should probably just go check up the Level Up stuff. It's a, essentially the same thing with a bunch more details and, and really good quality design behind it. Mm-hmm. I like it a lot. Oh, yeah. My personal feelings... I think the classes and the character creation is a little bit more granular than I like, but I've actually been really happy with the monster book. Like there's a lot of cases where the 5e version of a monster doesn't quite feel right for what I want it to do. And they've kind of done some neat tweaks to bring back like some things that a monster did like two editions ago that is not how they function in 5e. And there's a lot of neat stuff in there. Yeah, they also put a bunch of um, different like immunities and resistances and, and other stats that kind of go along with that. I'm with you. Like the the monster's actually a little bit too much for me, but that's that's a difference between you and me. Not not it's right <laughs> or wrong. Right? Like I like simpler stuff because I can improvise more more completely off of simple things. Mm-hmm. Here is an example of a game. Like I had a uh, to to say what I'm talking about. I had a game where I just used a stat block from Forge of Foes, like a, a CR stat block mm-hmm. from Forge of Foes. When looked up construct in the, the the dungeon master's guide or the the monster manual to see what like the deals with that and it was a brass construct it was a, it was like a, a mechanical construct and I'm like well let me just write a few things and in the middle of that fight somebody hit it with a lightning bolt and I'm like well I know what happens here it gets faster and it starts spinning more and it gets more attacks and I didn't write that in there but that makes sense for the, mm. the description that was there I think I wrote a note like hit with lightning makes it worse. <laughs> The level up 5e stuff, if you don't want to have that level of flexibility in your game, not that you can't have that level of flexibility, but you don't want to have to like read a bunch of granular stuff, um, it might not be for you, but if you like that bit more detail to inspire you, I'm right there with you, Jared. It's great. I think mm. the monster book is fantastic. And that's been a thing that's been kind of sitting out there, but I think it did get a little shot in, shot in the arm, you know, with what happened in January. But I'd have to say probably one of the big things that came out of this was Kobold Press launching Tales of the Valiant. Yeah. This goes into the idea that there's going to be a new edition of D&D in 2024, or at least an updated version of, mm-hmm. of D&D in 2024. Tales of the Valiant is essentially the same thing from a different perspective. Yeah. Which is cool to me because we don't have to rely on Wizards of the Coast for our Dungeons and Dragons anymore, for, for our, our, our D20 fantasy role-playing game. Like you just mentioned, Level Up Advanced 5e is there. Tales of the Valiant is there too if you want a different flavor, and it's going to be kind of tied into Midgard, so if that's a setting that you're into, great stuff. 
I do think that Kobold Press is in kind of an interesting position because initially Tales of the Valiant was really kind of being like, okay, it looks like the playtest is swinging for the fences. There's a lot of things changing that maybe people don't like to change. We're going to make some, you know, lesser tweaks, but keep it a little bit closer to, you know, what we feel 5e should have been a little bit closer to the 2014 rules. And since that time, when Tales of the Valiant launched and the Kickstarter and everything, all of the playtest material for the 2024 rules have really started ratcheting back to where they look a lot more like the 2014 rules again. Yep. So it's going to be interesting to see what Tales of the Valiant does to actually carve out their own niche now. I mean, from what I've seen, it doesn't look like much. They were going to take the Pathfinder model and just make (laughs) 5.25 I get well. Mm-hmm. I consider Tasha's being five point two five, right? So five point five, five point two six. I don't know. These games, it's hard. I'm not trying to like give it the version number because it doesn't really work. But if you get my meaning, like these games aren't any different. They all kind of work together, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, and you know that was the other one that I was going to bring up is the C seven D twenty, which is probably the most awkward game system title they could have come up with. It's a working title. Yeah, that Cubicle Seven is working on. And what's been interesting to me about that is they announced that they're doing it. But then most of what we've seen them put out are actually big supplements to 5e that are also supposed to work with C7D20. Yep. So, for example, we've seen like Uncharted Journeys and they announced A Life Well Lived, which is going to all focus on a lot more rules surrounding downtime. And I like those options. It's just interesting that we haven't really seen much of what they're going to do with the core rules, but we've seen a lot more stuff that they want to support that it doesn't look like wizards is interested in supporting i think if you if you don't mind cubicle seven is a larger company right Mm -hmm. they probably have a product line and schedule that they've already had set up for 2024 yeah they probably had it set up before that whole thing happened with the ogl so they just don't talk about it as freely as some other companies like what their plans are Mm -hmm. they probably had to release these books before they could get around to doing their own thing yeah now they probably put the c7 d20 thing into their product line like the day after but that requires development time and games take a long time to develop. We're talking like one to two to sometimes three years, depending on how big your team is. Oh, yeah. I don't know how much playtest material is out there for the C7D20 stuff right now. I haven't really seen any for that. Yeah. So like I said, they probably had to finish a bunch of stuff that they had on their list because they have multiple product lines mm-hmm. and they don't have like 100 employees or anything like that either. Like they're not a huge company either. They're, they're just, you know, that middle of the road I mean, they might be a little bit bigger than Cobalt Press, but definitely bigger than, I think, bigger than Yen World's publishing arm and things like that. So it just takes time to get these things done. Oh, yeah. I'm interested to see, but I also kind of wonder, they had mentioned kind of doing their own spin on classes like they might not have a fighter, they might have a warrior type. I'm really kind of curious to see what that looks like when they finally do start rolling some of this out. I am too. That is fascinating to me. Also, a lot of their stuff, it seems like, is, is cribbed from Adventures in Middle-Earth. Mm-hmm. Like, that was their, their foundation for building some of these other books that they've been building. And I think that their, their C7D20 game will be very cribbed from Adventures in Middle-Earth, which means there'll probably be really good journey rules mm-hmm. in the game, which we don't have really good journey rules in, in D&D right now, at least not that are widely known, right? Like, I'm sure somebody can spit out a supplement from somewhere on the DMs Guild or some of these, <laughs> these companies that I don't know about, because there's billions of... There's like... There's like 11,000 or 12,000 products put out last year or something like that that are 5e compatible. Like, good luck keeping up. Yeah. I mean, they did put out Uncharted Journeys, which is very much expanded that. Yeah. Yeah. That book right there. I Mm -hmm. think that book will slide into their their C7D20 core rule set. 
So speaking of games that kind of spun out of this idea and companies kind of wanting to control their own destiny, we had a few other level-based fantasy that isn't necessarily going to be 5e SRD coming out. You know, let me let me mention the one that's not on this list real quick. So Shadow Dark came out last this mm-hmm. year, last year. Like people are getting their physical copies like right now or, or when people hear this last week. Shadow Dark is a great game. I've seen the rules. I've, I've like looked through. I've listened to people play it. If you want that old school dungeon crawling, like 10 minute turns, deal with your torchlight type type dungeon mm-hmm. crawl using this fifth edition rule set. Great game. What a wonderful implementation and nice and, and focused. And that's a cool thing about some of these other publishers that can make these focused games. The interesting thing is, I know, you know, you've talked about this one a little bit, too. I think you're going to run a playtest. Did you actually run that playtest for the MCDM? I've played it and run it. All right. I know when I looked at the uh, crowdfunding for MCDM's RPG, it like screamed fourth edition to me. <laughs> oh, it is. It's totally a fourth edition <laughs> inspired game. I won't, it, it doesn't play exactly like 4E for a number of reasons, but there's a lot of that feel to it. Yeah, I know, you know, just how everything is kind of like a title that runs a certain way. Now, I would just like to say this because people have a wide variety of opinions. I liked fourth edition. I just didn't like the marketing campaign for fourth edition. <laughs> I love fourth edition. Fourth edition D&D is, is probably my favorite edition of Dungeons and Dragons. And now that I've played like 10 years of fifth edition, I like fifth edition a lot. Don't get me mm-hmm. wrong. It's, it's probably my second favorite edition of the game. Um, with BX being my third. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> I do not like third edition D&D. I'm not a fan. It is a perfectly fine game. It's not for me. In retrospect, I'm glad I'm not playing it. <laughs> I had fun when I was running it. It is a nightmare to, to, to game master for because of the monster stat blocks and stuff. The decision to make monster stat blocks the same as player <sighs> character stat blocks is the worst choice ever made in existence, <laughs> which if you've noticed in fourth edition and fifth edition, we have strayed far, far away from that and most other role playing games, which is a good idea. Definitely. By the way, the MCDM Kickstarter is at, of this recording, $3.985 million. Wow. With 55 hours left with 24,000 backers. Wow. My question was, was it going to get to 30,000 backers? <laughs> maybe not. Maybe, maybe, I don't think they're going to generate 5,000 backers in the, in the last 55 hours. Mm-hmm. Chris, you're punching in. I was wrong. It got to 30,000 backers and $4.6 million. Okay, there you go. But you never know. But that's on BackerKit, by the way, not even on Kickstarter. To me, that was actually really interesting because I'm not saying that it would have been, you know, you could dismiss it and say, well, of course they made that money on Kickstarter, but it does feel like it's kind of an extra hurdle to make that kind of money on backer kit because I don't think we've seen projects bring in that kind of dollar amount directly through backer kits funding. It's definitely a top three, if not the, the highest mm-hmm. backer kit project so far. I, can't, I don't know. I'd have to go do the research, but I remember somebody mentioning that when I was trolling around the Internet one day. I always, I always fall out of this, you know, because I know everyone so often there's like board games that go ridiculously high and I don't pay as much attention to that. So I miss a few of those when they blow up. If you want to know about the NCDM role playing game, it's fun. I mean, it's, it's a tactical game. You have to plan a map and there's but there's a bunch of role playing stuff in there. And I'm sure the game will change a ton between now and then. But you have a action and a maneuver on your turn. You can trade your action into another maneuver. The maneuvers are a wide variety of things. Your actions are, you know, attacking and doing some of those using your, your different abilities. And everybody's got abilities and there's usually a basic attack there's some signature abilities then there's some heroic abilities and the thing that differentiates it from fourth edition to me is one you always hit i mean that's that's mm-hmm. the thing that the game has been you don't you don't roll to hit you just roll 2d6 and do some damage sometimes you roll 2d6 plus a d8 but your positioning how you use your reaction your triggered action is very important for teamwork and things like that mm-hmm. um, a lot of the melee classes have an ability to parry and things like that and they can help parry 
certain attacks that would hit other people. So like I'm playing a the uh, conduit, which is like a healer. I don't have anything like that. So if I get hit, I just get hit. There are a bunch of free triggered actions that some classes get that are useful. I like that rule so far that's in there. The bad guys have a bunch of the same stuff. They have their their maneuver and their action, and they have triggered actions too. And there's the minion rule in there too. And the game that the adventure that I played, a lot of the design is based on environment. So you can't just put down a 20 by 20, like a 10 by 10 foot room with nothing in it and have a, a particularly interesting encounter, if you ask me. Mm-hmm. One of the encounters is on a clockwork set of gears that are constantly turning. And there are things that you can knock down to drop on people and you can knock people off of gears into pits and things like that. One of the encounters is on a roof where people have jetpacks. It's that kind of game. Mm-hmm. That's the setting that we're living in there. But it's cool because it's all about how you use your triggered reaction, how you use your, your actions to generate, this is the other thing, your heroic resource. Every class has got a heroic resource and they all work a little differently. And how those actions can help you manipulate and move the battlefield around. Usually when there's a status effect that comes up, a lot of times you, the, the opponent gets to make a resistance roll or you get to make a resistance roll if it's against you. That's pretty much the game. It's really fun. There's a lot of role-playing stuff in there, too. They've made it very clear how to do that, and it's still there. Like, all that role-playing, gamey stuff there, but the, the fight is a tactical combat situation. It's a good simulator for it. So, one of the things that I'm interested about the MCDM RPG is, if it's pulling from 4th edition, is it more expressly talking about the teamwork and things that you do with other people to synergize what they're doing? Well, with their playtest pack at 1, which is what I, what I played, ran and ran and played no like they don't explicitly tell you that stuff but it's it's pretty obvious because your triggered actions are to help other people it doesn't tell you who to help but it's very obvious that the tactician should probably stand right behind the fury yeah the fury is a barbarian the tactician's a warlord essentially but if the tech but the tactician has the ability to parry and the ability to make it to do like hammer and anvil and things like that yeah that that power was in the game and the fury is a barbarian and generates rage and the more rage it generates the less damage it takes and the more damage it does and they could spend its rage to do tons of damage. So that's, I mean, and, the, and having the tactician behind you lets the tactician parry for you and help you out and give you an extra attack and things like that. Yeah, it was just interesting because 4th edition still seemed to be in that 3rd that edition mindset where there was a lot of system mastery. Like, the designers knew that certain things were supposed to work together, but you were supposed to learn that those things work together as part of your enjoyment of the game. And honestly, I would rather designers just tell me what they expected things to do when I am playing things. Yeah, I don't think that'll happen because if we're going to just talk from a game design point of view, right? If I tell you that class X works with class Y, then it in, in, insinuates that if you have class X, you need to have class Y. If I tell you anything, like even like a leader class should work with whatever class and you have to have those kind of classes and it precludes you from having diversity of gameplay. So I think some of the fun in games like that is how is you get your group of people together and like, how do we combine up for interesting combinations, right? Yeah. So let me give you an example for what I mean. So if I had a group with three tacticians and a fury, that means I got three parries to go along with this, this rage monster. And that will play very different than if I have, I don't know, uh, the shadow and four conduits, which the conduit has in a triggered ability where they can give a, ba- a boon to damage. Now a boon is basically I give you an extra d4 to your damage, which if I, and you could stack them. So if all four of us give that, that rogue, the, the shadow, this, the shadow assassin, a, uh, a boon, that's an extra 4d4 damage on top of the fact that they're doing a ton of damage. So they can probably drop 50 points of damage on somebody in one round, which is a lot yeah. of damage in the game. So should I tell you to do that? Or should I be like, mix and match as you will? I don't know. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how, how obvious some of those combinations are as they're presented in the final rules. 
it was pretty cool when we played it the first time. The, the amount of people that were like, I use my triggered action, I use my triggered action, I'm standing next to them, I use my triggered action. It was intuitive after like two hours. So it was pretty cool. And the fact that it's not a, a numbers game, like you don't get pluses to hit because you don't need them, it's all about adding a die. So that makes it even more interesting because you get to roll more dice. Depends if you like that or not. I actually tend to like adding dice for things rather than a set bonus anyway, but that's been why I've liked fifth edition's version of bless. So, you know. The boon mechanic feels like just bless, <laughs> but just one time bless is all over the place or, or uh, guidance, right? And like, and it's cool because it works just fine. And the, and the banes are the opposite of that, that take away numbers, but banes and boons just cancel each other out. Mm -hmm. and then you just roll if you have anything left over. For an early playtest game, which is going to change, it's got a pretty solid gameplay foundation. So speaking of games where the designers tell you exactly what they're thinking, I did want to bring up 13th Age 2nd Edition, which is in development, but most of it that we've seen has probably been on Rob Heinzu's uh, blog and not really through a lot of playtest materials or anything like that. Um, I don't have a lot to say about it other than that it exists. And if people are going to be looking at other level based fantasy things, it is definitely something that's going to be in that space. And also it is definitely if it, you know, if, unless they make major changes, this is also a game that pulls a lot from fourth edition design philosophy and third edition design philosophy because of the two, two lead designers. Yeah. No, man, I, uh, I've played exactly two sessions of 13th age in my entire life. I don't know how many you've ever played, if any. Towards the end of fourth edition, um, I ended up getting into like um, someone was running the organized play campaign for 13th Age as they were doing at the time. I had a lot of fun. I played a ranger for most of that campaign, and then I played a few other one shots. So I, I enjoy the game a lot. I do think it tends to get a little overshadowed with everything else that's on the market, but it is very unique in how it does things, too. It is level based fantasy. But it is also very much numbers go up. You know, when you are talking about like single attacks doing hundreds of points of damage by the time you reach 10th level. Sure, that makes, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, <laughs> that sounds like fun. And that's somebody's fun, right? As long as I don't have to roll like 20 dice, like if I'm playing Shadowrun or something, right? It's fine with me. Well, and the interesting thing is when you're talking about like the uh, monsters not working the same way, monsters don't roll like 20 dice or something ridiculous like that. They just, their damage just goes up. So if you're dealing with that, you know, 10th level solo monster, it might just do 125 points of damage when it hits. Yeah, that sounds cool. I'm, I'm okay with that. Mm -hmm. And set damage is fine. Like, it just makes the game flow better. Um, so, I mean, I don't have a lot to say about it. And really, there wasn't a lot mentioned around the OGL with this or around, you know, other, you know, game companies. But it's out there. So I figured I would throw that in there. Shadow of the Weird Wizard also kickstarted uh, this last year. This one's interesting. And I am really excited for this because I have I have run and played uh, Shadow of the Demon Lord. That is another criminally um, underappreciated uh, fantasy game. But also, I think it is going to be really good to see that game system in something that is more traditional heroic fantasy rather than the horror vibes that Shadow of the Demon Lord has. What I can't understand is how it didn't do a million dollars. Yeah. It felt like it should have been a million dollar Kickstarter. It only made $411,000 and only had 4,000 backers. Yeah. Which to me, that is underappreciated for what Rob Schwab does. Great designer. You know, I backed the, um, the original Shadow of the Demon Lord one. There were like two different Kickstarters that I have ever Kickstarted that I felt guilty for how little I had to pay for the amount of stuff that I kept getting. <laughs> and one was Fate Core, and the other one was um, Shadow of the Demon Lord, because it was 
ridiculous the number of adventures and supplements and everything that I got just for backing it at the level that I got, you know, the core rule books and the PDFs to go with them. I agree. I I also backed Fate Core and the amount of stuff that I got for thirty dollars was was criminal. <laughs> but that's what they offered, so you mm-hmm. know. Um, the thing about Shadow of the Weird Wizard is it is very customizable, but it doesn't feel quite as granular, as fiddly as other games that I have seen that allow you that level of customizability. It's got some inherent setting to it, too, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, uh, from what I understand, this is actually taking place in the same world as uh, Shadow of the Demon Lord on like the other side of the planet. And it is much more of a we actually can save the world. We're not just surviving and hoping that the world doesn't end. We can actually turn the tide from this direction. Yeah, that's, that's fun, right? Like, let's, be, let's, be, let's go be big damn heroes. <laughs> Andrew would appreciate that. Oh, yeah. Where are we going next, Jared? Maybe we should go outside of the game and look at the brand of D&D. So how's D&D doing outside of selling rule books this year? Depends on who you're asking. If you ask movie studios, they say terrible. If you ask video game studios, they're great. It's fantastic. <laughs> What's well, really weird to me, Honor Among Thieves, um, obviously the, you know, the thing we're alluding to there. I love that movie. It was way better than I expected a D&D movie was ever going to be. And it did fall short of what the studios expected it to make. And that's always a weird thing because I never know how realistic their expectations are for the amount of money they spend making a thing. <laughs> Well, their, their expectations are to make uh, two and a half times whatever the cost yes. to make a market it back. If, they, if it doesn't do that, then it doesn't matter how many people went and saw it or what the reviews it gets. It's, it's a flop. Now, fortunately for Honor Among Thieves, the rumor is it's done extremely well on streaming. Yeah, I've heard that a lot. Like, and I've heard that every time it gets introduced to a new streaming service, because now it's been on multiple streaming services, there is another surge of people watching it, you know, probably for the first time, and it gets a ton of numbers again. Yeah, and, and the fact that they can keep moving it from streaming service to streaming service like that means they're selling the rights to do that, which means they're making money again. Yeah. So that's good for the movie because it means that potentially we can make another one or they can make another one, I should say. <laughs> I know, right? But it will not have a $150 million budget. It'll no. be like a $75 million budget movie or something like that. It is interesting because Chris Pine has already kind of said that, you know, alluded to the fact that he wants to make it and that they might make it, you know, make the sequel to it. So I hope that's a good sign and not just Chris Pine being wistful. Well, one of the Chris's, it depends on how much money you're willing to take to make the movie. <laughs> if it's the same paycheck that you got last time, probably not. <laughs> just throwing that out there. I liked Honor Among Thieves. I thought it was great. You can see, you can go listen to our Honor Among Thieves episode to hear me and Jared wax poetically along with Andrew about how much we love that movie. Exactly. I didn't have much of a downside for that movie. Now let's look at the financial success. Outside of uh, tabletop gaming that D&D had, Baldur's Gate 3. Game of the year, everywhere, the day it came out. (laughs) I've never seen a video game get so much love in my entire life. What's so funny is this game feels like it was taking forever to come out, not just because they released it in beta like several years ago and it was in beta for years, but because I remember like in 2008, there was like a PC Gamer magazine talking about how uh, Wizards of the Coast and Hasbro were trying to find somebody to do uh, Baldur's Gate 3 because the first two had done so well and it just kept not happening and not happening and here we are much later than uh, 2008. <laughs> so 
Baldur's Gate 3 put the one thing in there that I wanted it to do so I could play it again and be happy with it because I kept misclicking stuff and I couldn't like <laughs> rewind it. There is a function now where you can slow click, where you can have to hold <laughs> the button down for a second. I'm like, thank you. Thank you. That, that makes this a much more playable game for me. I, I mean, I've played about 60 hours of Baldur's Gate, but 30 of that was uh, beforehand, before the full release came out mm. and 30 after it came out. The game is really cool, man. It's a, it's a very D&D experience. I don't know if you've played it or not. I own it. I have not had a chance to play it yet because it's one of those things where I want to clear my docket and just focus on that if when you know when I do finally dive into it. Yeah, there's a there's some fun stuff in there like I uh I went the I must have gone away that I wasn't ex- that the game doesn't really it doesn't tell you where to go, right? But there's chapters. There's like a chapter 1, a chapter 2, mm-hmm. a chapter 3 or or act I should say, acts. And I ended up in act 2 at one point in time when I wasn't supposed to be there. I also ended up in the underdark at one point in time because i just found a elevator down into the underdark i'm like oh this is cool found some stuff opened a gate walked in there got hit by a fireball and died <laughs> because it was like 90 points of damage or something and i was like oh i'm not supposed to go this way i guess i should probably go back upstairs <laughs> just because i can go there doesn't mean i should go there <laughs> yeah yeah and, and sure enough there's like of course there's a well in one spot and i go down the well and of course it's down into multiple caves with spiders and stuff right and edder caps and things like that it's like because of course if there's a well you can go down into the well and there's like <laughs> a course. dungeon complex <laughs> i mean it's just and those are just little things right like it's also like dating simulator 2000 if you want that in your, <laughs> out of your gameplay too i don't know i've never seen anyone mention the romances on the internet no no i mean yeah i i, I mean i'm old news right here right like but if you, if you want to if you don't want to have the hardcore tactical combat stuff just roll yourself up a bar with a high charisma lean into your illithid tadpole in your head and you can pretty much talk your way through the game and get everybody to kill everybody else <laughs> throwing that out there chris's walkthrough that's actually my friend mickey's walkthrough but he told oh, okay. me about it and i started using it. i'm like oh this is fun <laughs> now what's interesting to me with Baldur's gate 3 is this was developed by larian studios so this was not something that was in-house at Wizards of the Coast. Obviously, people were working with them because, you know, the people from Larian Studios have talked about, you know, working with several of the designers from Wizards of the Coast and how some of the people they worked with aren't there any longer. We'll get to that later. But it is largely something that was developed outside. And that reminds me of something else that happened this year that I don't think got a lot of big uh, news articles. And that is... There was supposed to be a big AAA game being developed by Wizards of the Coast. They hired a bunch of people that were game de- you know, that were video game designers, and they were going to start doing this from inside of Wizards of the Coast. And then they disbanded the studio, and all of those people went their separate ways. And th- that kind of flew under the radar with everything else that happened this last year. I never even heard of it until you mentioned it. Yeah. I didn't even know that was a thing. Yeah, it, it was really strange because if you followed certain people you saw them talking about this it wasn't something they were trying to hide but then all of a sudden it was just i i start seeing some of those people then talking about how they were taking different jobs and i was like what happened and i looked into it and you know apparently wizards decided we aren't the type of company that should have an in-house video game development company so this is going to go away and it just kind of disintegrated and yet when people were talking about it it was supposed to be a major triple a release that they were developing in-house there's like a whole lot of stuff that happened this year to that company <laughs> that changed the way that they operated didn't they sell off e1 yes they were selling it they were selling it for a while the, the sale just finally went through with i forget who bought it yeah so they don't have that media wing anymore for their company mm-hmm. their toy sales are in the in the trash like just down so far i mean magic and D make the money i imagine some of those other 
properties. Like they, they own Transformers and G.I. Joe and, and Power Rangers. I mean, I'm sure those still make them some amount of money, but their toy lines are just destroyed, which is why all those people got laid off. I'm really curious too. to, I, I have not seen it break down this way, but I know like the G.I. Joe and Transformers things that get sold to the collector's market seem to be doing well. I don't know that say like all of the tie-ins to like rise of the beasts did well, where you're actually trying to sell these to kids, which is where you're going to make more money than selling them to people my age who are just going to buy stuff and put them on a shelf. It's actually surprising to me that they would disband a video game studio because if I was them and I had those licenses, I would go and figure out how to make a game like uh, Marvel Strike Force or, mm-hmm. um, or uh, the Star Wars version of that, which yeah. I can't remember, whatever it was called, and line that up with the G.I. Joe Transformer stuff because it would probably do well. And not to, not to widen our scope too much, but when you're talking about Hasbro and things that they licensed, there are so many weird things that Hasbro has done in the last couple years <laughs> because they have wizards of the coast, which is a company that makes role-playing games and they license GI Joe transformers and my little pony to renegade game studios to yeah. make a video or to make a, a tabletop RPG. Yeah. I don't get it. And wait, it gets even weirder when that video game studio was still around. One of the other games they were supposed to be working on that wasn't this big AAA D and D game was a snake eyes game. Oh, that would have been awesome. But they were they were starting a studio at Wizards of the Coast to do a Snake Eyes video game, but they didn't have the people at Wizards of the Coast do a Snake Eyes tabletop RPG. Could you just imagine hiring a bunch of people that made like the 3D Ninja Gaiden games and just make it a Snake Eyes game? Oh, yeah. As a Ninja Gaiden game, like a Ninja Gaiden with Snake Eyes, it'd be great. I would love to see a stealth-based, you know, gameplay thing with Snake oh, Eyes. Yeah. I don't know if that's going to surface anywhere else, but yeah, that's... So many weird things happened this year with Hasbro. Put Snake Eyes in a cardboard box. Let him sneak around. It'll be fine. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Sorry, Metal Gear Solid fans out there. I know we're we're so far off. Can, I should probably bring us back. Like, we should probably talk about the streaming shows that just got buried. Yes. You were talking about bizarre things that I don't understand, right? There are three shows in a D&D like, streaming channel that exists. You can watch it on Freevee, which is through Amazon, or uh, I forget what the other one, the other Tube, not Tubi. I don't know what the other, Plex. Yeah. Plex. It was on Plex. Yeah, Plex. It was Faster Purple Worm Kill Kill, which was a Matthew Lillard show. It was Heroes Feast, which was a cooking show using their cookbook. And it was Encounter Party, which used seven actors. And I believe Encounter Party's got a, uh, a, a podcast anyway. Mm-hmm. But seven actors, highly produced, well-edited, dramatic Dungeons & Dragons, each episode being about an hour. I listened to some interviews and, and read some interviews about how that show got made. It's really like three to four hours of recording for like 45 minutes of, of, uh, of action. Yeah. It was it was a production, right? Like it looks good, but let me tell you, man, it ain't easy to watch these things because it's hard to get at them. You have to like go deep into the internet just to find out like where it is, and they have to be on a streaming service that's free. Don't get me wrong, at a specific time to watch these things. Yeah, and that's that's what was really weird to me. We were talking about this a little bit before we started recording, and when they first announced that they were doing this this channel for you know D and D shows. I thought this was going to be an app, like, I don't know, Dropout? like, um, college humor. Yeah. Like dropout or something where it's just an app that you would download. And the only thing that's on this is the D and D thing. And you would know that you could watch it. And that is not what this was. <laughs> not in any way, shape or form. And it should have been, they should just make a D and D beyond app and they should have tied this right into it. It would have been fine. Yeah. I mean, it would have taken some work, but it would have been fine. Yeah. It was just really strange because it did. It seemed like they were really hyping it going into it and somewhere it just kind of got lost and I wasn't hearing about it. And then when I did hear about it again, it was like, yeah, you can go hunt for it somewhere on the internet. It's happening. So here's what I think happened. 
and this is just me speculating, right? This is just, I like to speculate. I don't have any inside information. <laughs> Honor of Monk Thieves didn't do super well. They sold E1. Mm-hmm. They got rid of this game studio that they had in-house. They had these streamings and they're like, we're going to walk away from this because this is not the way for us to make money, especially the fact that we've just lost a ton of money as Hasbro. So we can't really do anything of this. So we don't want to make people think that we can make second seasons of these things. So it might not be you know, feasible as far as financially. Yeah, we we officially release these things that we may have been contractually obligated to release. Yes, yes, we we signed documents. We had to do it. I, yeah, I would not doubt if that's not pretty close to what happened there. So that's that's all I have to say about that. It's too bad it's a cor- corporation, but you know these are actors. These people should get paid money, right, to do these things. Yeah, actually, I'm going to switch. I wrote down some things from 2023, but I actually kind of wanted to talk about maps first because that actually rolled out before some of this other stuff we're talking about. Sure, do it. Hit it up. D&D Beyond rolled out maps, which is a function that is kind of a minimalist VTT ahead of their much more ambitious 3D bells and whistles VTT that they're coming out. And I'm really curious, is this a side project or is this a buffer in case they need to pull back on that project? This is a marketing project. It's smart, too. I like this mm-hmm. idea a lot because it's right on D&D Beyond. You just pull it up. You can play with it. People can see it. It's easy to process for pe- most people's computers. And mm-hmm. it gets you onto their site yeah. in, in, a, in a repetitive way, like come back and use our maps program because all of our maps are built into it. So if you go there, you can see the advertising that they have for other things like the bigger VTT, like whatever books they're selling, because D&D Beyond is the, is the landing page really these days. They spent so mm-hmm. much money on it, like $150 million or something. They spent $150 million to buy this, this website and now they're just going to use it as their front page, which yeah. to me, it's smart. I think it's smart. All of the, not all of the old books are in there yet, but all of the newer books as they come out, the maps are added into that, that maps, uh, function there. So it's, and it actually, for the first time in like a couple of years, since they did that encounter builder beta, they incorporated the encounter builder into this thing. So that now that actually kind of matters for keeping track of initiative and seeing roles and things like that. So it's smart. Yeah, if I weren't if I weren't so heavily invested in some third party stuff that I own, I would totally run games using this maps function because it does what you need it to do. Yep. And unlike you and me and the hundreds of people that are listening to this, we're in the vast minority of people who care about and pay attention pay attention to all the D&D stuff. If 80% of the people that are using the internet for Dungeons and Dragons just go to D&D Beyond. So yeah. Putting a map program on there gives them another reason to go back to D&D Beyond. Mm-hmm. That's my thought. Oh, yeah. It, yeah. And it just it, it, it was interesting, though, because it kind of came out of nowhere. They weren't like saying, oh, stay tuned. We're going to do this thing that's coming up. It was just one day. It was like, hey, here's a thing for you. Yeah. And a, <laughs> a lot of a lot of Internet personalities that talk about Dungeons and Dragons made a pretty big deal out of it. So any of us who are paying attention know it exists. Yeah, it's definitely worth looking at. And it's actually gotten more refined than when it first came out and when it first came out it was still pretty functional i mean and again this is like very inside baseball if you have ever run something using albert rodeo it was more functional than albert rodeo (laughs) and maybe just a smidge less functional than roll 20 and the fact that they've made it better shows that they're going to develop it yeah and they're they're adding more maps to it shows that they're going to keep supporting it which is smart like it's a good marketing tool every once in a while you want to have like a free thing and if this free thing doesn't cost them a ton of money to keep developing, because they already have like a person or, or, or like a, a team of like three people working on it mm-hmm. in their spare time, like 10 hours a week or whatever, who cares, right? Like that's just a, 
a marketing write-off. Like, okay, we've used some of our marketing budget to do this. And it's a free thing that encourages people to spend money because if all of the new stuff, maybe not all the old stuff yet, but all the new stuff has stuff incorporated into maps, then you're encouraging people to buy stuff on D&D Beyond because then they'll get all the maps and tokens and everything set up for them. 100% agree with you, man. That's it's smart. Smart. Moving on from something they did that was kind of surprising and I think worked really well. PAX Unplugged was a really high point of excitement for a lot of people, both watching D&D stuff and even the designers that were there talking about what was coming up with the 50th anniversary. So what do we think of some of these things that they announced at the uh, at PAX Unplugged? Let's just mention them real quick. So there's quests from the Infinite Staircase. There's Vecna Eve of Ruin. There's Descent into the Lost Caverns of Sojacanth. And there's the 2024 rules. Yeah. Let's take a look at what all this stuff means. <laughs> Quest from the Infinite Staircase is obviously going along with kind of into that that planescapey type mm-hmm. area, I think, and setting up and setting up in a lot of ways Vecna Eve of Ruin. But it's also going to be their anthology series because every couple of years they have been releasing an anthology series. Yes, with just a bunch of adventures where you can pick and choose what you're going to run out of it. Vecna Eve of Ruin is a, is a plane hopping campaign though. So if you buy quests from the Infinite Staircase, you could slot your Infinite Staircase quest, and if they're smart, they'll say how you can slot your Infinite Star- quest from the Infinite Staircase quest into Vecna Eve of Ruin. Yes. That, that would be the intelligent thing to do, whether it's a D&D Beyond article or it's in the Vecna Eve of Ruin book, which it won't be because page count matters. Yes. Like the, the thing that they made for uh, Planescape, the extra PDF that they created for the graveyard. Yes. If they do something like that to say, here's how you can slot your quest from the Infinite Staircase into Vecna Eve of Ruin, that would be what I would do if I was them. It would be smart. Well, one of the things that I think you know, slid under the radar too much was when they released Keys from the Golden Vault, there were t- several of those adventures tied back into uh, Radiant Citadel. Yep. And I don't think people realize that. And it was kind of a neat callback to something that wasn't that old, but it was a nice tie in there. Hence why quests from the Infinite Staircase should more directly, like, yeah. here are these quests that you can slot, at least like half of them should slot into Eve of Ruin. The thing that's interesting to me about Vecna Eve of Ruin is just that it's interesting to me because they're using this to open... Not a new edition, but a new presentation of the rules. Which is something they've done in the past. Yes. And, but see, last time they did a big plane hopping Vecna adventure, it was to end second edition. Yep. So it's really interesting that they're kind of echoing that now with this adventure. That just goes to, to Perkins and company being very aware of the history of Dungeons and Dragons and how they should do things in these cyclical manners. It creates their, mm-hmm. they have like a multiverse too, don't get me wrong, and they're they're trying to make that more prominent in their uh, in their game. Like we're not seeing new settings. No. I mean, we should probably see Dark Sun at some point. I would think in twenty five, twenty six, twenty seven, one of those years because they haven't hit it yet. And it's just part of their multiverse. It's just sitting there, unless they want to do Birthright, which they won't do, or they want to do Mistara, which they probably should do. That's that's my thought. I wouldn't be shocked by Mistara. Not necessarily a campaign setting book, but maybe a campaign that takes place in yeah, yeah. kind of like they did with Dragonlance. Just because it's a it's a world that exists, right? That they haven't really fleshed out. Mm. I mean, I, I I guess I should also say where the heck's Greyhawk? That's a good question. Um, well, we got to see it a little bit in um, Ghosts of Saltmarsh, and we probably saw a little less of Greyhawk than we saw of Dragonlance in the Dragonlance adventure. We we don't know the quests that are in the adventures that are in quests from the Infinite Staircase yet. We don't know the titles or anything yet. I I didn't see. It. I looked around. We haven't, yeah, we really haven't heard anything other than that it's going to be their anthology for this next year. This might be a space where they just drop a bunch of different setting things inside of that book, right? We might see Mm -hmm. a Greyhawk adventure, we might see a Mistara adventure, we might see a Dark Sun adventure. I I wouldn't put it past them, right? Yeah, and I I think they've, I think they even might have said you're going to visit some 
places from D&D that we haven't gone to yet in 5th edition. They'll just drop some alternity in there for fun? <laughs> Jared knows what I'm talking about. Go look it up, everybody who doesn't. You'll be shocked. Also, StarCraft had an alternative version. It was a strange, strange role-playing game. It, it was. Yeah. Vecna Eve of Ruin looks awesome. I'm, I'm going to pick it up whether I run it or not. I probably won't run it, but I'm going to definitely pick it up. I just want to see. I, it just, I like this multi-spanning plane hopping. And Vecna is like one of the great big bads of, mm-hmm. of the Dungeons and Dragons universe. I think it, it kind of got buried, but literally the setup to third edition where, for example, Forgotten Realms had a different cosmology than Greyhawk, which was not the case in previous editions. Mm-hmm. The reason that was the case is because Vecna almost made it into uh, Sigil. Because he was a god that almost reached the center of the multiverse, it broke things into a wider multiverse. The Lady of Pain wasn't having any of that. Yeah, it basically broke all of these settings away from each other so they weren't sharing the same, you know, cosmology. Which is interesting now because it really looks like in 5th, everything is sharing the same cosmology again. (laughs) Which is probably good. That's probably the Mm -hmm. right thing to do, right? Just roll it all together. I think that makes sense. Yeah. But it did. It is really interesting because that was a pretty momentous thing that just kind of happened, and then they moved beyond it. <laughs> so Jacanth is a is a, a hit at nostalgia, a hundred percent hit at nostalgia. I mean, if you played that adventure back in the day, then that's why you pick it up. I mean, it, it's for those folks that aren't playing the game right now, or are like uh, just kind of like paying attention a little bit. But if you see Lost Caverns of Sojacanth and you played that when you were a kid, you're probably gonna go pick up that book because you're like, oh yeah, nostalgia update. See, that's the interesting thing, though. It's not going to be a book. That's going to be a digital-only product. Well, see, even better. Easier to pick up, right? Mm-hmm. But it is interesting that they are specifically... This isn't like a lot of their digital-only products have been, where it's been like they kind of mention it right before it comes out. It's not something they market long-term as if it's a regular product like some of their other products. This is something they're telegraphing that they're going to be doing. It's going to be coming up, and it's going to be a digital-only product. Yeah, because... Well, uh, kind of like uh, what the Chains of Avernus, the, uh, the, the Asmodeus Chains of Avernus, it'll be kind of in that vein? I'm not sure. I mean, I don't know that they're even going to have a PDF release. I think it may be something that's literally just D&D Beyond, and that may, may be it. That's the mistake to me, man. Like, the, those, <laughs> old, those old folks like us and older, they don't want to <laughs> just buy it on Beyond. They want the PDF so they can have it forever. I mean, I'm looking over here at all of my special edition covers that I get. Or things that I still haven't run yet. So, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, that's really going to be interesting to see. And maybe they will put out a PDF, maybe. But, you know, we haven't seen them do a major electronic-only release. It's been minor things like collections of monsters or short adventures. So I'm really curious to see what that looks like and how it comes out. Me too. It's going to be fascinating, for sure. Okay, then the, there's the big one, Jared, the, the 2024 <laughs> rules. What do, you, what do you think about this for the game? I hope they do well. I, I am not someone that hates innovation, but I am kind of happy that they did start rolling back some of the stuff to be closer to the 2014 rules, just because 5th edition has been pretty popular, and you know maybe you don't want massive overhauls. You just want a little tweak here and there saying, you can do this three times a day instead of one, you know, because over the last 10 years, we've realized that that doesn't you know people don't use that very often i think that it matters to a lot of people i think this release these releases will matter to a lot of people but it won't change the game at all really i think the biggest thing it's going to do is take all these books that we've gotten over the course of 10 years and coalesce the rules in them that are good into one volume yeah because it looks like they're already going to pull a little bit out of they're going to pull some stuff out of tasha's and put it in core 
you know, some things here and there. Um, and, and some of the more modern design for species as opposed to, you know, how they came out in the 2014. But yeah, I think it is a lot of consolidating and, and it looks like they're going to be freaking huge from what yep. they were discussing. And the dialed in monster design rules. Now that they've mm-hmm. kind of figured that out better than they've had any, at any point in time in the past, somebody thank Mike Shea for doing all that work because <laughs> I'm pretty sure the D and D people are like, oh yeah, this Forge of Foes book is really good. We should probably just pay attention to this and what the people over at Advanced Five E had done and figure out like, oh yeah, these CR things they don't make a ton of sense. We should probably get a better system for it. <laughs> I don't know. Like that's that's I'm gonna guess that's what's gonna happen. Like that's D and D should do what Blizzard does. If anybody's familiar with Blizzard and World of Warcraft and things like that. Classic Blizzard design is basically take the stuff around you that you know exists and just use that and maybe polish it up a little bit and make it a <laughs> slightly better version of that if you can. Because that's all that's all Blizzard ever did, man. That, mm-hmm. And that's all that D&D should do with the stuff that's around them. In fact, if they're not, I think they're just missing out. I mean, you basically gave these rules away for free. You have money to make <laughs> really polished products. Just go do that. The, the thing that's interesting, and this is my you know nerdy game number loving personality here. I'm really curious to see those monsters get reworked because in something like level up, they can change the CR of something if they want to, if they think that a beholder, well, not a beholder, sorry, bad example. If they think that an Aboleth should be, you know, CR 12 instead of CR 10, they can do it. But because wizards wants this to be backwards compatible, whatever changes they make to our hypothetical Aboleth, it still needs to be whatever their new baseline is for a challenge rating 10 creature because an, an Aboleth is an Aboleth. Which the important thing is new baseline. And I, I think that's important because you can be like old Aboleth is not yeah. as strong. I, I think it's perfectly fine to say that in mm-hmm. your book, right? Like here, if you want a slightly less useful Aboleth, you go use that Aboleth. If you want this Aboleth, <laughs> here's the new CR system. Here's how the monster manual one CR system applies to it, right? Make a PDF, be like most of the CR, you can take a look, but in general, like, look at the stats and this is kind of what the CR should be. That's my thought. There, there was already some interesting stuff because I did um, a pretty in-depth look at um, Fandelver and below. And it is, it's interesting seeing how they tweaked some of the encounters from Lost Minds of Fandelver because there are some places where they add things where I was kind of surprised where it's like, yeah, you're a second level party. You can deal with three more of these things than we had in the original encounter. Oh man, the, Tasha's power creeped mm-hmm. everything. Your classes are way more effective. Um, also, they realize that the the combinations that people can put together are way more effective than they used to be. I mean, even like a second level, third level paladin can dish out a ton of damage. Oh yeah. Not that that's the only thing, right? Like, I mean, I know there's all those damage rules out there, all those damage videos and things like that out there, how to like these builds and whatnot. But I, I'm I really think that a lot of people don't get into the whole idea of like what a good encounter actually is and how like you need to craft mm-hmm. environments around it. Because that's really what makes, to me, memorable quality encounters and also giving secondary objectives or primary objectives with the fight being the secondary objective. That's a completely different show. Oh, yeah. <laughs> completely different show. Yes. And, and I will say, beyond just numbers going up, even with the power creep, I have been happier with whatever power creep we've seen in 5th edition than in 3rd edition because a lot of those subclasses have much stronger stories to them. I, yeah. If you're saying that you have a, you know, a druid of the circle of stars, there is this neat tie in to constellations and being able to use radiant energy and things like that, that feels like a druid that is tied to constellations should work. It's not just a, 
you know, anytime you do radiant damage, you do 10 times more. You know, it's it's not something that reductive. For a numbers nerd like me and you too, it's a lot easier to design custom content for your game because you can just look at that stuff and be like, oh, this all makes sense. Mm -hmm. Numerically, I see what they're doing here. So I can pretty easily design something that at least fits into my home game. Yeah. So I, I appreciate that too about the game, right? Like I think a lot of those updated subclasses have helped me like retune the, the way that I design things for my, mm -hmm. my players. And really, yeah, you know, we were talking about, you know, trying to, to, you know, be pretty positive. I have really liked the direction that fifth edition has gone. Me too. Like, I think they've done some really solid design work and I think things look better now than they did when they came out in 2014. And I liked the 2014 rule. Yeah, this is this is a B to an A plus in, as far as like a lot of design goes. Now, mm -hmm. you can complain about a lot of things about D&D, like, but the base game, I think, is solid enough, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I think it's it's definitely maybe maybe A plus is a, is a, mis, a misstep. I think it's like a B, <laughs> B to an A minus, a B plus yeah. somewhere in there. Well, and this is this is something that, you know, Angie and I have said this before, like, like kind of like what you're saying with Blizzard. D&D is not here to be the innovator in the RPG space. No, it is here to be the satisfying current iteration of a thing. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. They could innovate it if they wanted to. It would just make a bunch of people angry. See 4th edition D&D. &D. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, when, when has that ever happened before? People don't want new. They just want stuff that's slightly different. That's all they want. I mean, sometimes you do just want to refresh. Yeah, and not, not the exact same thing, right? We don't want to reprint. We just want to refresh. Like you said, you want, you want 80 to 90% the same, 10% different. Yeah. So another thing that happened before we get to the end of the year... Um, that was kind of surprising is D&D Beyond started incorporating third-party material into the site. And when they first did this, it was Critical Role, and a lot of people were like, well, they have an existing relationship with Critical Role, so that's probably why it got on there. But now we've seen a few Ghostfire Games things show up on there as well, or a, something developed by Ghostfire Games that was actually, you know, someone else's Yeah, sure, the Dungeon Dudes, project. Uh, yeah. their, uh, their, their Drakenheim, uh, Dungeons of Drakenheim, or uh, whatever that was called. And I don't know that I know where this is going, but I just was kind of curious if you thought there was a specific direction they're going with this. I have a couple of thoughts about this. When the DMs Guild came out back in the day, I was like, this is cool because it's all of us being able to do whatever we want with this IP to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was neat because it's a bunch of small creators getting to play in the big, in the big sandbox. At first glance, like, well, that's kind of neat that these publishers are being allowed to put their stuff on D&D Beyond, but that can take away from the greater marketplace that exists. So, like, we have itch.io, we have mm. one bookshelf's the Dungeon Masters Guild's a part of. If D&D Beyond come, becomes the centralized place for 5e content going forward, and it becomes similar to what the DMs Guild is, and then they don't have to pay Roll20 anymore... Not not roll twenty. Um, one bookshelf, I should say. The the no the the drive through RPG. They are the same company now, but yeah, the, that's what everybody knows about. But it's roll one bookshelf is the company that will greatly hinder one bookshelf as a company and could could put them in a in a bad spot. Maybe not. I don't know what their numbers are like. I don't, I don't know how much money they make. I I don't have any friends on the inside anymore that I talk to regularly, so I don't. I haven't heard any of that dirt. I mean, they they're definitely pushing to refresh the site and how it works in a manner that I have not seen them do in this cohesive of a manner in the past, but that's all what, what roll 20 has been up to in 2023, which is a little beyond our scope, yeah. but yeah. I mean, except it's not with this conversation. <laughs> I, I know, I know, but yeah, I think, I mean, this has been something I've talked about to some of my friends who are third party designers 
if everything goes through D&D Beyond, that is a massive gatekeeper because yeah, not everybody can put their stuff up on drive through RPG. And if it looks nice and it catches someone's attention, it's going to get sales. Not everybody is just going to put together their little indie scrape together, you know, campaign setting that looks really nice, but isn't a major release. They're not necessarily going to be able to convince wizards to put it up on D&D Beyond, which is the front page of Dungeons and Dragons now. I'm also really curious because, uh, for example, the Layers of Atharis, that is a product about, you know, monster layers in that setting, but it's not the setting books and it's not the player's guide. And what's interesting to me about that is I'm curious if D&D Beyond would host that kind of material because there are add-ons in Grim Hollow that are not standard 5e stuff. There are things like the transformations where you layer on this thing where you are partially a lycanthrop or a vampire or whatever on top of your regular class and species and all those things. And it, I'm really curious to see, are they going to even try to implement that thing? Or are they going to be, you can put a certain subsection of your stuff that conforms to these rules onto D and D beyond. I'm curious. I am at first blush, right? Like when you, when you say that layers are a more universal product, mm. You can put them anywhere. You can scrape off some of the serial numbers and just slot them in. So it makes more sense. But I mean, Taldori Reborn's on there, right? Yeah. That, that's a setting book. I mean, really the first original, not re- yeah, it's original, or original D&D setting because it was published. I mean, it, granted, it, it belongs to Darrington Press, I believe, yeah. I think still. Yeah. But it was published as a D&D book as a setting, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what to think yet. It's, it's just, it, it, it can be scary. Yeah. This could be a scary thing for the... 5e publishers out there yeah and and i think what it comes down to is i wouldn't expect the people working for hasbro that are writing code for D beyond to go out of their way to write extra code so that you can add transformations onto a player character so that you can accommodate ghostfire gaming true just like i wouldn't expect them to write all of the extra rules from you know like the uh, uncharted journeys if say cubicle seven got on there unless they wanted to, to add that functionality to their game. Right. So yeah, this is a huge question mark and I'm really wondering what, what, what does it mean? <laughs> no idea. It's interesting. I, it could be bad. Mm-hmm. It could be very bad. Like you said, the gatekeeper thing is the thing to be scared of. That's all. Yeah. <laughs> now let's talk to talk about the final act of 2023 for Dungeons and Dragons. The December layoffs. Man. It's it sucks, right? Like it just yes. sucks that this happens. It's not unusual though in the corporate world, unfortunately. Not that I've ever been party to it, but I know people that have been party to it. I've mm-hmm. have family members that have been party to it. It blows. It's it's not a good thing. No. But it's just the way that it kind of works, unfortunately, in our capitalist society in America. This is the thing I feel terrible because I was very upset originally when all of this happened. Because, you know, like you mentioned, it almost feels more personal. And especially it was almost like adding insult to injury because we know Wizards of the Coast is not what lost Hasbro all of their money. So it's almost like, why are you taking it out on them? Even though it's not really much better to take it out on all the people that make the Transformers toys or, you know, make the uh, board games or anything like that. But I think something that you said earlier and also something I've heard Mike Shea say is this has made it painfully obvious that Wizards of the Coast is not really an independent entity from Hasbro. They don't get to do their own thing. Hasbro definitely overshadows them in any situation that matters. It's true. 
But the more interesting question is, what do you think this is going to mean for the future of D&D in 2024 and in the future of 5e across the next year or two? I'm curious because what we have seen in the past, way back now, granted, this has not happened in the course of 5e because 5e actually kind of like was created on a skeleton crew and used a lot of freelancers and then grew. Mm -hmm. Whereas third and fourth edition, there were big layoffs after the editions came out because it was like, we don't need as many people now that we've done our core rules. So sorry, there you go. And there were some pretty famous people in the third edition and fourth edition days that got hit by those layoffs too, who are now producing some major content in other places. So that's, that's where I'm with you, right? Like, yeah, it sucks that this happened, but there is a bunch of designers out there now that can get picked up by other studios or start their own studios and make cool games. Mm -hmm. So maybe not in 2024, but in 2025, we'll start seeing some really interesting things. But with these layoffs coming before the new edition, which, you know, whether you want to call it a new edition or not, that's fine. Up to you. Make yourself happy. But with these layoffs coming early, I wonder what it's going to look like for look like for them to pull these things together on the schedule that they currently have. You know, I imagine that they're farther along than we think they are. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it probably is in the editing and uh, editing as in like proofreading and fitting things on pages, not like go redesign the subclass, you know. No, I think they're still writing the Dungeon Master's Guide. Yeah. But that's like a bunch of bunch of that's going to be the campaign setting. Yeah. There's supposed to be a campaign setting in there. I know that we didn't even Weird, we right? didn't even touch on that one. There's going to be a whole campaign setting in there. Oh, this is okay. Sure. <laughs> to me, way more useful. I mean, the, the, the Dungeon Master's Guide wasn't terrible. Mm -hmm. I, I thought that the 2014 Dungeon Master's Guide was okay. I it's do, not my favorite Dungeon Master guy, but it's fine. From what I have heard, you know, even from some of the people that I know that managed to do uh, adventures in, like, say, Candlekeep Mysteries and things like that, they are working a lot further ahead than we usually realize. And I think we don't have that feeling with the core rules because they're still playtesting things. But I do think, like, the adventures and stuff are probably closer to final form than we realize. So what I'm interested in, I think going into 2025, we may be seeing a thinner slate of things coming out then, because I think that's when the downsizing is probably going to be starting to be evident. Probably. Although I will say that uh, Curse of Strahd, which is widely regarded as one of the best D&D adventures out there, was primarily written by Chris Perkins over three weeks. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I guess... When it comes to adventures, I guess, are easier to write than that other stuff. <laughs> well, and also, I mean, Curse of Strahd, I, I mean, that's something that Perkins may have been wanting to do for a long time. So he already had a bunch of stuff in his back pocket. I'm curious to see if we see kind of a return to early fifth edition, because things like Princes of the Apocalypse were actually developed by Green Ronin. I think Prince of the Apocalypse was Green Ronin. Out of the Abyss was somebody else no i'd or... say it's reverse it's sasquatch studios which was rich baker's studio yeah. did prince of the apocalypse green ronin did out of the abyss um kobold press actually did the tyranny of dragons so i'm actually kind of curious to see if this work that they've been doing with ghostfire gaming doesn't end up having ghostfire gaming develop some official D, &D products as freelancers i mean that would be interesting i'm i'd be curious to keep an eye out, out for that yeah, it's it's really hard to see. I mean, and and it is kind of a weird reset button back to where we were in 2014, where they have a much leaner staff and they might have to lean a lot more heavily on freelancers. I wonder if they learned some lessons from those early projects, because those like Out of the Abyss is OK. Uh, the second half of it feels weird. Mm -hmm. the, 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 the gap in it. 
Um, Prince of the Apocalypse was, by all accounts, pretty bad. That's what that's what people say. It's a dungeon crawl inside a dungeon crawl inside a dungeon crawl. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, how interesting. I mean, you can make that interesting, but it's not always easy to make that interesting. You know, I've seen people talk about Tyranny of Dragons and some issues with that, but that was being developed before there were fifth edition rules. That was, you know, being developed by, you know, when they were getting glimpses of what fifth edition might look like. <laughs> Man, but the intro, the intro to, to Tyranny of Dragons is so Yes. bad the greenest arc yes. like it i mean we needed some help with like how to that's all yeah. i'm saying there's there's like there needs to be i don't know who's not going to blame uh cobalt press for that because who knows what happened in editing yeah. right we, we don't know how that changed over the course of time and of course the person that's got their name on the book as the writer is going to get the most blame for it but somebody okayed that and released it yeah and i was just thinking like you know i have empire of the ghouls and i read it and it does not start Man. off with people saying Oh, the ghoul emperor attacks, and if you manage to crit him, then he'll retreat. <laughs> Which is what they did with the blue dragon at the beginning of... Uh... Dude, man, ghoul the emperor is supposed to be so good, too, so it's hard to like be like, well, if that was so good and that was so bad, <laughs> what's, what's the not, what, what is not the common denominator there? Yeah. Right? Early D&D, skeleton crew staff on the wizard's side, probably not a ton of like back-and-forth quality editing, right? Like, I mean, that's the guess. Mm-hmm. That's the guess. Anyways, that's like t- 10 years ago and not right now, but I know. I- I'm with you. I think, I think it's probably a good possibility that some of these other companies might get another shot at, at doing some of these products. Mm-hmm. Why not? <laughs> Nobody can see me shrugging, but I'm shrugging. I mean, what's really interesting to me is the idea that Hobold Press has kind of you know, taken off and done their own thing. Would they even still be in the running for somebody that they would rope back in to be a developer because they have... The people and the infrastructure to do a major adventure yes they should do one for wizards of the coast but why would they do one for wizards of the coast right. when they've kind of they kind of burned a bridge there yes they were very much on the on the forefront oh, yeah. of being like screw these people for what they did yeah which that's fine but you know it's i i mean your ghost fire thing not a bad not a bad pull because i don't think they did that no obviously by the fact that they're on D beyond the only thing that they said was that they were going to use tales of the valiant but i think that was more a matter of being able to have an open game license at the time when it wasn't sure that there was going to be an open game license to put out 5e stuff that's just smart business right like yeah I, I, what other companies could possibly pick that torch up who else is out there i don't even know who would do it? I mean, I would have said MCDM, but they got their own game now, so who cares? You mentioned um, you mentioned the Osmodeus. The Chains of Osmodeus. Um, that was a bunch of people that used to work at BioWare. Yeah, they could do a thing. They, they've proven themselves. That's Arcanum Worlds. They've done Odyssey of the Dragon Lords and Raiders of the Serpent Sea. Yep, they could do it then too. Yeah, so I mean, that is another possibility. So these are the names to look for in 2024 <laughs> as far as announcements go. Uh, you want to move on to downtime research? Oh man, let's. This has been a long year. I mean, a long episode. Yes. <laughs> no time for rest, you two. Get on with your downtime research. All right. Every episode, we're going to look for something related to D&D that we want to pass along to our listeners. It might be products, websites, videos, podcasts, but it will always be something that we think will enhance your D&D experience. So Jared, I want to talk about the thing that you started doing that I wish I could, <laughs> but my hand's all messed up so I can't type. <laughs> From the Dungeon 23, which everybody did a dungeon a day for a while and most people fell off, but there are a few people that finished. We have Lore 24. Lore 24 is you're going to build an established or original world using little bits of lore every day, be it like locations, people, NPCs, plot hooks, uh, magic items, gods, cosmologies, whatever. But every day you just write something. And, and then at the end of 365 days, you'll have this pretty fleshed out space. And I know that Jared's doing it right now because I've seen the first two posts. Um, yeah, my first post, I just did a bunch of bullet points 
outlining. I wanted to, you know, outline. I don't want to color outside of these lines, you know, so I can rein myself in a little bit. And then the next day I started detailing things. I think the direction I'm going to go with a lot of this is examining an NPC and then expanding the world based on where that NPC lives in the world. Very cool. I'm going to do it. So, yeah, I, I started off with a an exiled prince that is in charge of a large group of bandits. And that got me to fleshing out a little bit of the political situation in the first, you know, monarchy that I mentioned in the entire setting. So we'll see where it goes from there. Yeah, but if you're interested in looking for some lore for your uh, your D&D games and magic items, NPCs, whatever, just look up the hashtag lore24. I'm sure it'll be out there somewhere. I'm not advocating doing it like me because I really overthink things. There's just been some really neat, <laughs> like people drop a paragraph and it's just a cool paragraph about a thing. You know, you could take that chunk of something that is really inventive and just drop it in anywhere. What about you, Jared? What do you got? All right. So I've got a really broad recommendation this week. For Christmas, my daughter got me a wooden DM screen and a dice jail and a nice uh, dice holder. And the screen came with some neat little D20 uh, shaped wooden magnets. And she got all of this from Etsy. And I went to Etsy to find more of those magnets because it came with five. And that's not going to be enough for me to hang. Uh, it's basically assuming you're going to put one magnet for each sheet that you're hanging from it. And I like to have two magnets for each sheet. It's me. It's how I am. <laughs> you would be amazed or maybe you wouldn't be if you've already done this but if you go to etsy and search for dungeons and dragons there is an amazing array of stuff on there that are all like custom crafted items there's people that are making like uh their own sets of dice from resin you know resin kits there's dice towers containers screens there's all kinds of things that are handmade and are it's the kind of stuff that i would have loved to have seen when i was much much younger playing DD, but there was no way to find people that we're making this kind of stuff and nowhere for those people to sell this to other people that are looking for that kind of stuff. So take a look around. If you've got some holiday money, treat yourself to something cool like that. All right. Well, we are happily part of the Misdirected Mark Productions Network. So we wanted to give a shout out to another MMP show. If you're enjoying Talk with Advantage, you should also consider checking out Pandas Talking Games, queer gamers talking about tabletop role-playing games and making outtakes. Join Pandas, Phil, and Senda every Wednesday answering listener questions about playing, running, and designing TTRPGs. Get cozy and let's talk about some games. Well, we've used up all of our resources, I think. We've been at this for a while. So I think it's time for a long rest and a bit of a hibernation since we had a long year. <laughs> I hope this adventure was rewarding for you. It was for me. It was nice to be here. Thank you, Jared, for letting me come onto the show. Good having you here. <laughs> Angie, I hope you feel better soon. She's a little bit under the weather. Anyways, we hope you'll go exploring with us when we start our next adventure.